Welcome to Crashing the War Party. We are well rested from a Memorial Day break and our producer Remzo is back from his honeymoon. And guess what? The world has kept turning without us. The war in Ukraine continues to rage and the war party in Washington is still resisting any common sense pathways to peace. In the second segment, we'll be talking to Justin Logan about Sweden and Finland's membership bid into NATO. But first, let's talk about the annual summit of the Americas. This is the first time that the United States will be hosting the event since 1994, and there is already high drama threatening to overtake it. Why? Because word is that the Biden administration is not going to invite the leaders of Cuba, Venezuela, or Nicaragua, apparently keeping to its democracies versus autocracies foreign policy strategy. But since this is not an American event, we're just hosting it, the other countries are saying, that all of us in the neighborhood are invited or none of us. I don't know about you, Dan, but it looks like the United States is about to put its foot in it again. What could be a productive event? Bringing leaders from the hemisphere together is threatening to implode because the Biden administration just can't see beyond its own virtue signaling and hypocrisy. Um, There's a, a number of leaders who are boycotting this event, including uh, our closest neighbor, Mexico. Um, Is there any way that we can recalibrate at this point? Is it it a done deal that we're not inviting uh, the the leadership of these three countries? And is it really worth the United States taking a stand on this issue? Well, I'll I'll take the question in the middle first. I, I think it is pretty much definite that they're not going to be inviting uh, the the actual uh, governments of Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba. Uh, I mean, for, for what it's worth, I think Ortega and uh, the president of Cuba have both said, uh, we're not going to come anyway, even if you do invite us, uh, because we we dislike you so much. Uh, so in, in in that sense, it's it's already, it's been a done deal for some time. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, in the case of Venezuela, uh, we technically don't recognize the de facto government under Maduro. Uh, we pretend that... We still pretend that Juan Guaido is the president of Venezuela. Uh, and so the, I think the, the only question now is whether Guaido will be invited to Los Angeles uh, to so supposedly speak on behalf of Venezuela. So it's uh, hmm. that, that, that much uh, has, has, I think, already been decided. Uh, the, the problem that we're seeing, though, is that a lot of other countries, I mean, especially the Mexican government, but I think also uh, Guatemala, Bolivia, uh, some of the Caribbean countries have also expressed their dissatisfaction uh, with the decision not to invite the other countries. I mean, if those governments don't want to attend, if they if they choose not to attend, then that's their choice. But I think it, it was just a an unforced error on our part not to extend them the invitation. We could still have made the points we wanted to make about the importance of democracy, the need for uh, accountable government rule of law, uh, anti-corruption measures, all, all of the things that the Biden administration says they want to talk about, uh, but they could have done that with those governments in attendance. I don't think their their mere presence uh, taints the summit. I think it's important to to include all states from the region if you want, even if you do want to deliver a very specific and principled message about uh, political reform, about democracy. And so they, I think they they made the mistake. Uh, and it's similar to the mistake that they made with their earlier democracy summit, where they uh, sort of chose uh, very selectively 
who got to qualify as an acceptable democracy and who didn't. And so, you know, some of our European allies and NATO allies didn't make the cut. Some of our neighbors in the Western Hemisphere didn't make the cut, even though they were, properly speaking, democratic governments, uh, even though we didn't like their politics or we didn't like their individual leaders. And so it was this kind of uh, picking and choosing that, that keeps getting them into trouble. Uh, now, it may be that they're going to be able to prevail upon Lopez Obrador and others uh, to finally show up in Los Angeles after all, but the Senate was already in trouble long before this. Uh, I think as Chris Sabatini wrote about in Foreign Policy a few weeks ago, uh, the summit was already being set up as a big failure because our engagement with Latin America was so uh, limited and inadequate. Uh, and indeed, many of our ambassadorial positions in the Western Hemisphere remain unfilled even now, uh, and, and including the uh, ambassador-level uh, appointee uh, to the Organization of American States uh, Francisco Mora, whose nomination has been languishing in the Senate for uh, something like eight months now. Hmm. He, finally, he finally got a confirmation hearing, I think, last week or two weeks ago. And so he's, he's finally getting a hearing, but he, he hasn't even been confirmed yet. And he's supposed to be the point man in running this summit. Uh, and obviously, he's not in a position yet to do that. So it's, the, the, the whole thing has been uh, pretty badly organized, pretty badly handled. And now that you have these threats of boycotts, uh, it, it's looking to turn into a real shambles. Uh, and I and I think a lot of it could have been avoided. Uh, you know, maybe the the situation with the Senate and confirmations couldn't have been avoided because of obstructionism. But certainly, in terms of the the participation of all members in the Western Hemisphere, it certainly could have been handled better. Yeah, and in in addition to um, the uh, the Mexican president threatening to boycott, also uh, Bolivia's president uh, Luis Arce as well as you mentioned several Caribbean leaders, as well as the newly elected president of Honduras is also suggested she won't yep. attend. Um, you know, this is, you know, this, this has, this has invited all sorts of, of, of soap opera and drama into an event, which, as I mentioned, you know, at the outset could be productive in an area which the United States has neglected. Uh, for the last several years. And, and you mentioned this could all be avoided. Yes, you know, uh, President Obama, for all of his faults, had gone to these uh, summits and had sat there while one leader after another after another excoriated the United States for its hypocrisy, for its uh, drug war, for um, its, its policies in the region, uh, its, its duplicitous policies in the region, and sat there and then gave his own speech. And because he showed up, uh, because he at least showed that the United States was willing to engage, you know, it, it actually won us political points, political capital um, for the moment. I don't see why the Biden administration can't do the same. It doesn't, by, show, by inviting um, these leaders, uh, from Venezuela, Cuba, whether they show up or not, um, and Nicaragua, you're showing that, you know, we are confident in our policies, uh, we're willing uh, to hear you out, um, perhaps be even more flexible down the road. Um, and it shows, you know, it, it's some uh, strategic empathy, if you will, uh, for, the, for these countries. Um, and it seems as though the Biden administration just has this sort of tone deafness 
whether it be, you know, here in this hemisphere or uh, Russia, the Middle East, uh, it doesn't seem to have its act together for all the talk at the beginning of this administration about the adults being uh, in the room uh, once again. You know, they, they've turned out to be almost even worse than the Trump administration. In a sense, I mean, it's, it's been worse in that they've raised expectations of kind of diplomatic competence or diplomatic savvy uh, that they have then failed to to live up to. And I mean, and I think a lot, a lot of the policies in Latin America are evidence of that. Uh, it's, it's only just in the last few weeks, I think, that they started to make to engage in some easing on restrictions for travel uh, to Cuba, uh, which which could have been done much sooner. Uh, but they've been reluctant to do anything to undo Trump-era measures uh, regarding Cuba or Venezuela uh, because they think that that's going to play into the hands of Republican hawks that want to paint them as socialists and pro-Castro, pro pro-communist, pro uh, when when that's not, of course, that's not the, the case. Uh, but they're, they're, I think they're, they're desperately afraid of the political fallout, especially in Florida among Cuban and Venezuelan exiles, and so they they just don't want to even touch it uh, for fear that it's going to burn them. And so even now uh, with Venezuela, we, we continue to have the same bankrupt policy that Trump has had uh, for pretty much his entire presidency. And, and Biden is carrying it on with this illusion that, that Guaido is somehow a realistic alternative uh, for leadership at this point. And, and at this point, he... His approval ratings are about as bad as Maduro's. Yeah, uh, because well, because people there can see that he has no power and he's not going to get any power anytime soon, and they so they they realize that he's not a real option. And unfortunately, uh, people in Washington are are much slower to recognize that reality. And so it's going to be uh, the the summit which is coming up now in I think uh, from now it'll be about a week. Uh, by the time this is broadcast, it'll be less yeah. than that. Uh, the, this summit is looking to be a, a kind of a black eye for the Biden administration uh, that has already had quite a few. And I, you know, I think it's going to be a real uh, blow to, to the image of America as sort of the, the natural leader in this hemisphere. Uh, and, you know, and maybe that's not always such a bad thing. Uh, maybe our pretensions to leadership in the region uh, are... Uh, unfounded or, or should be should be cut down to size uh, because very often what we have counted as leadership in this part of the world has been to interfere and, and meddle and dictate terms to other countries. And I think, I mean, that's what really what is driving the boycott in response to these, these non-invitations. It's this idea that, that we're lording it over the rest of the hemisphere and telling other countries who, who's in and who's out. And, and I think the, the point that uh, Lopez Obrador is making is that it's not up to us. We don't get to make those decisions for the entire hemisphere, uh, and and we ought to uh, have some humility. And so, you know, maybe if we can learn that lesson from this, then it won't be completely wasted. Yeah, and and I think the idea that um, the Biden administration or the or Democrats would somehow transcend the politics. Uh, when they came into office is, is you know, he's finally put that to rest because, you know, just take the issue of the border. I mean, we've listened to Democrats for the last four years talk about the root causes of the mass migration up from these countries 
to uh, the, our southern border in the United States. Now they're in office. Now they actually have the power and the authority to do something and look at the root causes and work with the leaders of these countries like Honduras, for example, uh, where they are dealing with this massive um, murder rate um, and gang problem. El Salvador right now is, is, is just going crazy uh, with uh, gang issues. Let's look at that. We, they put Kamala Harris in charge of the border issue. And what do they do? Nothing. They, at, the, at the very least, they have eased some of the immigration restrictions on Cuba because tens of thousands of Cubans have been coming to our border illegally because of the restrictions that Trump put on the, the immigration uh, policies there. So they're lifting that because that's, you know, so, so that they can have fewer people at the border. And so the optics weren't, won't be so bad for the Biden administration, but it's still not fixing A, the relationship with Cuba that's driving the migration or B, any of these other uh, root causes, including the, the war on drugs, which I maintain is, is really at the, at the foundational level of the crime and the corruption in many of these countries that we're talking about. And so, if, you know, if I was a Democrat, I would be very disappointed because it seems as though they're all talk and no action. It's all about politics and they're not going to do anything about the drug war. They're not going to be doing it. They're not going to do anything really about the, the border uh, problems. Um, and because they're worried, as you said, about their about the elections, the Cuban uh, minority in Florida and uh, the Venezuelan um, interests in, in Florida. And that sort of precludes any real like, you know, rolling up the sleeves and actually doing um, what's best. And, uh, you know, and they see the hypocrisy. They see that once, oh, we need some oil. Then all of a sudden we got top officials going to Venezuela and start talking to Maduro about possibly lifting some sanctions because we need oil because of the Ukraine-Russia crisis. Um, so they know that they're only they're only going to be um, they're only um, the only interest in these countries are for when it suits us um, geopolitically or economically, unfortunately. Well, and then the the added problem is that they we haven't even followed through on those negotiations with the Venezuelans right. to to lift sanctions on their oil exactly. sector. Uh, so it's it, it even that was a false start because Half they measures. they got they got scared off uh, when Rubio barked at them, and so it ended up uh, leading to nothing. Well, and, I, and I should also say Menendez barking at them uh, because unfortunately this this hardline approach to Venezuela and Cuba uh, has sponsors in both parties, uh, and and they're very uh, determined to to keep our policies as broken as they uh, have been for these many years. Our guest today is Justin Logan. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He is an expert on U.S. grand strategy, international relations theory, and American foreign policy. His current research focuses on the shifting balance of power in Asia and the limited relevance of the Middle East to U.S. national security. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to have you uh, back on, I think. Uh, we, we've, we've talked to you before, and uh, we're very excited to talk to you again this week. Uh, you and Ben Friedman had written a very interesting article making the case against 
NATO membership for Finland uh, in particular. Uh, but the, some of the same arguments might also apply to the, the case for Sweden. Uh, this is Their applications to join NATO are, uh, represent major shifts for both countries. And you said that the case for Finland is especially problematic. Uh, can you tell us why that is? Sure. I mean, I think it's important to ask at the outset of this discussion, what problem uh, Finnish or Swedish NATO accession solves? And I think it's a little bit of a puzzle. Um, it, it, it's, it's exceedingly unlikely, particularly in Sweden's case, but almost equally in Finland's case, that Russia is poised to invade Finland or Sweden the way it did Ukraine. So I think, you know, I, I'm old fashioned in the sense that I think NATO is a serious military treaty um, and should be pointed at serious military problems. And so I think, you know, this move really reflects a desire to punish Russia. Um, and it's not even clear the extent to which it punishes Russia. To, to some extent, it complicates Russian defense planning. You can talk about Gotland. You can talk about, you know, the Baltic Sea. Um, but I just think that this is a, a, an impetuous move on the part of the Finns and Swedes and on the part, uh, potentially, of the 30 existing member states. And what one might ask, if Sweden and Finland have managed to survive and, and even thrive with neutrality for all these decades uh, since World War II, uh, what what is so what is a sudden urgency as you're saying it, it's a, a sort of impetuous move by them uh, looking at it from our side uh, what are the costs and risks of adding new allies in Europe when we already have so many there I mean I think in the short term they're not immense they're not trivial but they're not immense um, as I just suggested I think it's exceedingly unlikely that Finland or Sweden will be attacked by Russia and so the question, what more you need to do to prevent Finland and Sweden from being attacked by Russia is probably not too much. I think if you look at NATO's standards, it's important to point out that NATO has its own standards for member state militaries. And historically, bringing those member state militaries into line with NATO standards has been a significant chunk of the upfront cost. Um, so I think you know billions of dollars, low billions uh, at the outset, um, which, again, in, in Pentagon numbers is not huge, but it's not throwaway money either. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the important part here is that this is a, a sort of a deferred liability, right? I might be right that it's not it's not going to cost terribly much to deter Russia from attacking Finland or Sweden today. But who knows what may happen 20 or 30 or 50 years down the road? And you want to ask yourself, would the United States be well served to fight a war against Russia, risking potential nuclear exchange for Finland or Sweden. And there, I think, you know, understandably, these are a little bit more abstract questions, but they have very real underlying uh, questions. Really, and well, one thing that I've noticed in the debate or really lack of debate about the possibility of them joining NATO is that it's, it's very much like the, the second round of NATO expansion where uh, the Baltics and many other uh, Eastern European countries were brought in all at once. And there was never any real thought given to how to defend them because there was a, a sort of tacit assumption that they would never need to be defended. And so that the, this, these were security guarantees that were being offered that would never actually be triggered. Uh, and so what, what you're talking about in terms of the long-term commitment, uh, I think makes a lot of sense because in, in another half century or, or even in another 25 years, we, we don't know what the security situation is going to look like, but if we make this commitment now, we're still on the hook for them. Uh, so do, do you uh, 
Well, what do, you, what do you think about this? Why is it that the U.S. has made a habit of handing out security guarantees to so many countries without thinking through the implications? Well, I mean, that's a, a doctoral dissertation you've just laid out there um, that I'm not equipped to write. Um, but no, I, look, NATO has had this Janus face since the end of the Cold War, right? It is at once a serious military alliance meant to deter attack from Russia, and at the same time, it is a democratic club of people who dress better than us, who get around and talk about liberal principles. And so at times, you know, you're talking about admitting the Baltic states to NATO and they say, well, they dress very well and they have liberal principles. And wh why shouldn't they be in the well-dressed liberal principle club? And so we admitted the Baltic states to NATO in 2004 without any defense plan on NATO's part for defending them until they begged for one after Russia invaded Georgia in 2008, finally getting one in 2010. So there's this sort of bait and switch where it's like, What's your problem with Finland, man? And the answer is nothing. I have no problem with Finland, but I think NATO is a serious military organization. And if I'm going to put my boys on the hook to fight and die potentially for Finland someday, I'd like to talk about what's entailed in the defense of Finland. Thanks for coming on the show, Justin. I'll, I'll play a devil's advocate for a second here. Um, you know, Quincy, as well as other organizations, have advocated that that Europe begin to start taking responsibility for its own security. So Finland and Sweden entering NATO, you could argue that that would be, you know, another step towards maybe more autonomy on the part of Europe taking over its own security down the road. I personally don't see it that way, but how do you react when 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 folks say, well, you know, add the, these two capable European nations and, and you're getting more towards edging um, or, or at least reducing, you know, um, not so much the influence, but, um, you know, the leadership of 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 uh, of the United States in the security of the region? I, I think that's exactly wrong. Um, I think that NATO is and has been since its inception a vehicle for the United States to exert outsized influence on European security. That's why in the 1990s, the late now late Secretary of State Madeleine Albright began looking at really fledgling efforts to stand up a European security capability and said flatly that that was bad and would poison transatlantic relations if the Europeans did more for their own security. So I think NATO is clearly a US-led organization that extends US influence into Europe, in my view, too much so. So by putting two new states into NATO, that US-led organization, it really recenters the European security architecture on NATO and by extension, the United States. And the other thing that I'll just add here, you mentioned, you know, uh, Finland's and Sweden's capable militaries and their um, even their defense industrial complex in some sense. Um, or defense industrial base, rather, uh, which is non-trivial, um, but they really don't have capabilities outside their borders, right? It's, it is the case that the Finns have thought long and hard about one big defense problem for 80 years, being invaded by Russia. And they have lots of ideas about how to thwart a Russian invasion, but they're not going to be 
assets to NATO outside of the defense of Finland. So it's important to point out, again, I think Finnish military exertions are enough to deter Russian invasion, um, but they don't bring a lot to the table beyond that. So it's a little bit of a question what's in it for the existing NATO member states if you have a, re, you know, we've sort of lowered the bar such that people say, well, the Finnish military, Finland is much more defensible than the Baltic states, which is true and also kind of a problem because the Baltic states are already in NATO and have a seemingly limitless appetite um, for defense exertions on the part of the other NATO members. So I, I it, it is true that uh, Finland and Sweden are pretty safe countries with pretty capable militaries. They just don't bring a lot to the table outside their borders. Thanks, thanks. And I want to just follow up on that for a second. So let's shift the the window to Russia. So membership is granted to Finland and Sweden. How does this how does this agitate? Russia further than it already is agitated because of of NATO expansion over the last 30 years? And are are we willing to accept the consequences for that? Uh, You know, I mean, Russia is pretty agitated already uh, about a variety of different things. So um, the, the early utterances from President Putin have been fairly sanguine. Um, he said that the fact of uh, Swedish or Finnish membership isn't necessarily a huge problem, although the forward deployment of NATO assets on their territory would be treated differently by Russia. Um, so I don't, you know, it complicates Russian defense planning, for example, in the Baltic Sea and elsewhere. So I think probably their military planners worry about it. And But the, the, the Russian view of NATO is so <laughs> deeply hardened at this point that, you know, we're, we're just sort of walking into the caricature, really. Um, so, I, but, it, but I don't really think that, you know, uh, inflaming Russian insecurity or Russian paranoia should be counted as a huge tick against their membership because their paranoia is pretty inflamed as it is. So I don't know how much this is going to add to it. And what does this do for the future relationship with Russia? Because at this point, if you add these two countries, we are creating a massive containment against Russia. Is there no future with uh, any future relationship with Russia? And is it is that exactly what is intended here in terms of any future security architecture that includes Russia, which I know has been talked about before, but this seems to preclude that. Yeah, I mean, there are other big factors that preclude that uh, in the very recent past. So, you know, I don't think that the new dawn of a better, more sustainable European security architecture was on the table right uh, uh, before we did this. But I do think, you know, it is, again, just the sort of hardening of these pre-existing realities. Um, And again, I think that to me, the problem is this as I said before, Janus face on the part of NATO, where if it were always and everywhere a serious military alliance aimed at the Russian military, you would talk about it in one way. And if it were just a friendly, well-dressed Democrats club, you would talk about it another way. But we have this bait and switch that we do. Um, And so I think there's people are hard headed when it's useful and you know, uh, uh, a cocktail party attitude when that's useful. And I think that 
we should be very wary about that. We should watch out for that. And we should point out uh, when the arguments are sort of bait and switching in that way. Uh, you were talking about the Baltic countries wanting other allies to uh, engage in a lot more exertions on behalf of the alliance or against Russia. Uh, one example we've had of this lately is the Lithuanian government urging various states to try to break the Russian blockade along the southern coast of Ukraine. Uh, and this is starting to get amplified by some uh, some people in Washington. I think James Devridis just wrote this week uh, calling for just that, uh, either a U.S. or NATO uh, effort to escort convoys of grain ships back and forth and and essentially daring the Russians to stop them. Uh, uh, how, how dangerous is this idea, do you think? And well, first, how, how dangerous is it? And do you think there's any chance that the U.S. would actually participate in, a, in an attempt to break the blockade? I, you know, the, the problem with these questions is you never know when you've gone too far until you have. Um, and so, I, you know, I had the hair on the back of my neck stood up you know, half a dozen times since the war in Ukraine started. And, you know, I don't have any wood to knock on, but, uh, you know, things have kind of gone okay. But I think that, you know, the, the this Lithuanian proposal, I mean, they also suggested that Egypt should uh, help right. escort um, Ukrainian grain vessels. And this, look, let's you and him go fight is a longstanding uh, principle of statesmanship that has been, uh, uh, you know, for millennia. Uh, has taken place. But I just think that we need to view NATO, certain NATO members as what they are, and they're really need factories, right? They generate needs, and it's through no fault of their own, right? If you're a defense planner in Riga or Tallinn or wherever, you see a scary world, and it is a scary world. But the question isn't, you know, should we cast aspersions on, you know, Lithuania's or, or Estonia's defense predicament, the question is whether we should make it our own. And I think that's the, the fundamental error that we're taking on here. And that's how these uh, 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 commitments that at the outset are marketed as great celebrations of freedom and democracy wind up being immense burdens on the Defense Department of the United States and by extension, the taxpayers of the United States. Well, yeah, well, and it, it seems like that should that should change our appetite for adding more members to the alliance. But but it seems like it, just the opposite has occurred. You're now having more discussions about not just bringing in Scandinavian countries, which are relatively secure, uh, but I think there's renewed talk about bringing in Georgia as well. And so there there seems to be no no learning going on from what we've seen over the last twenty years about how these commitments are liabilities. Uh, what, what do you think? I mean, I, without, you know, completely derailing the conversation here, hopefully, I, I, you know, you have a group of people grading their own work in Washington, right? And they done, you know, three or four rounds of NATO expansion. Um, and they say, it's been a great success, um, which is what people do when they grade their own work, right? You had this tremendous rear guard rhetorical action um, around Russia's unprovoked, aggressive invasion of Ukraine to say NATO had nothing to do with it. I think you can perfectly defend the argument that it wasn't primarily about NATO, right? Putin did make all of these weirdly uh, imperial historical gestures, but he mentioned NATO, as Bob Wright pointed out, 
40 times in that speech. So do you have a group of people who are just saying to themselves, this project, which we've unanimously supported, um, did not contribute to the crisis at all and really hasn't had any downsides to speak of. Now, where, where I sit and the way my brain works and what makes me kind of a bad think tanker is I see conflicts everywhere. I see upsides and downsides in everything. It's not the case that all good things go together and all bad things go together. There are trade-offs between my values, between my interests, sometimes even among interests and among values, there are trade-offs. So I think this Manichaean binary view of the world that the vaunted transatlantic community, or at least the portion of it that's, you know, 10 miles away from where I am right now, um, really doesn't see anything as having gone wrong other than the venality um, and perhaps, you know, uh, uh, mental illness uh, that resides in Vladimir Putin's head. And I think that is a dangerous and foolhardy way of reducing international politics away from most of international politics, right? If we just reduce these things down to unfalsifiable assertions of pathologies, there's really no way to evaluate our policies. There's really no way to um, to do this. So again, I think it's it's perfectly reasonable for someone to argue you know, Justin, you've been wrong. This wasn't primarily about NATO. That was part of it, or maybe that got the train rolling, but that wasn't that we, we can have that argument, but we're not having that argument. We're having the argument that it had nothing to do with it. Nothing. It, to me, that's just a kooky idea that should, in a, in a, in a sane uh, imperial capital like our own, be laughed out of court, uh, but it hasn't been. One and paired with that is this constant emphasis on on Russian agency, saying, "Well, you know, Russia has agency." Well, yeah, yes, they do have agency, but they're also going to be reacting to things that we do, and that that dynamic has to be taken into account. And they would just like to say there are no consequences or no bad consequences to any of our actions, uh, which is which is awfully convenient uh, when you want to keep doing more of the same. Uh, did you have any final comments, Justin? Yeah, if I never hear the word agency again, it will be too soon. I do, it is just a completely bizarre idea that no, you know, like I, I will I will put my cards on the table and say I like structural explanations for things. Stories where there's no good guy and no bad guy, but stuff just happens are quite okay by me, and I think they explain the world pretty well. Most people don't like those kinds of explanations. I get that. That's what makes me, you know, again, a bad think tanker. But this idea that somebody is saying that, you know, uh, 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 Vladimir Putin had no choice or, or what have you is just you know, I, I don't know whether people believe it to be true or it's a cynical debating trick or what. Um, but yes, he, he the decisions that leaders take are shaped by context. And I think they're shaped a lot by context. Other people might think they're not shaped nearly so much by context, but the context is there. Um, and, and I just it's it is a response to an argument that no one has made. And I find it to be uh, off putting to the point of being maddening. Right. Oh, and I, I agree with that. Uh, and that's that's a good place to end it, I think. Uh, thanks very much, Justin. Uh, we appreciate having you on and we look forward to having you back again. Thank you, guys. I'm a fan of the podcast. Thanks, Justin. Thank you. 
Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.